if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 14. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. And uh, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Pray with me. God, these are your words, not just man's words. And, and the words on these pages in this book are different than any other words in any other book. There's nothing like it. And God, we just thank you that we can read it in, in our language. We thank you for the privilege of possessing copies. And God, we need your help. We need your help to understand them. And so just pray that you would be with us. Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are in our third uh, week of our Advent series, as, as you've heard, and uh, we've been learning about how Christ is pointed to from all of the Old Testament. Uh, as Luke 24:44 says, Jesus says, everything that's written about me in the law and the Psalms and the prophets, it, it's all about me. It's all about him. And so, you know, two weeks ago, uh, we had Daryl who preached about Christ from the law, and then last week, Adam from the Psalms, and so this week... We're learning about the prophets, and our question is, how does Jesus fulfill the prophets? And so, uh, in order to do that, we're going to look at one specific prophecy, which is Isaiah 7:14, which is, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. So, I couldn't preach every prophecy, so I just had to pick a good one. So, why, why this prophecy, though? I'll tell you why. One, it's a great Christmas prophecy, isn't it? I mean, it's like the classic Christmas prophecy. You'll probably read it. You'll probably read it in Matthew, though. Did you know that this is interesting? There are only three, three passages in the entire Bible that, that mention that Jesus was born of a virgin. Only three. It's in Matthew 1, 23, which actually quotes this, and then Luke chapter 1, the birth narrative. But outside of the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke, there is no other verse in the Bible that says that Jesus was born of a virgin, except for this verse. So pretty interesting. And it's really more interesting than you think, because this prophecy was made around the year 730 B.C. And Christ was born around 5 or 4 B.C. And so, think about it. If this verse is really saying that Jesus was born of a virgin, it was a prediction made in 700-something B.C., and it really came true, this would be a prediction that was made 700 years before the event happened. So to put that in perspective, you know, 700 years ago from today, you know, the Italian Renaissance was just getting started. Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, the other one, he was an artist, and 
he was painting the Sistine Chapel. If, if this passage says that Jesus was born of a virgin and it really happened, that is more amazing than if Michelangelo, while painting the Sistine Chapel, painted a picture of the Pope holding an iPhone 11 Pro. <laughs> I mean, can you get your head around that? that this, is, this is an incredible verse. And so it's also a controversial verse, wouldn't you, wouldn't you know? Because in scholarship, you really have kind of two camps. You've got some critical scholars and you've got some conservative scholars. And critical scholars don't think that this is miraculous. And, and actually, there are some translations of the Bible which translate this, this verse as, Behold, the young woman shall conceive, not the virgin shall conceive, which we'll hopefully get to that in a little bit, which... It's, it's okay. I mean, it's, the word does mean young woman, so, but it's, it's controversial because the people aren't happy about that, and um, people are actually burning Bibles because they translated this passage wrong. In fact, in North Carolina, uh, Rocky Mount, North Carolina, of all place, in 1952, uh, a pastor preached a two-hour sermon entitled, the National Council Bible, the masterstroke of Satan, one of the devil's greatest hoaxes. The title was almost as long as the sermon. And then he led the congregation outside and took the pages out of his Bible and publicly burned them for mistranslating as he saw it this, this verse. And now some of you are worried, am I going to preach a two-hour sermon or set something on fire? Well, friends, let me, let me put you at ease. I... I give you my word, I promise that I will not set anything on fire. <laughs> For the sermon, we'll see. I heard, I, heard a, um, I heard a pastor say one time that the Bible is less like a light bulb and it's more like a campfire. You see, a light bulb, they both give you light, but a campfire gives you light and it gives you heat. And, and God's word is meant to do that. It's meant to give us truth to enlighten us, but it's also meant to, to warm us. It's, it's meant to warm our hearts. And the difference between a light bulb and a campfire is the light bulb, you just walk to the wall and you flip it on and there it is. With a campfire, it takes time. You've got to slow down. Nobody ever you know, walked over to a campfire who was cold and stood behind it for three seconds and then walked off and said, dang, this thing's broken. It's not working. Well, that's not how campfires work. You have to slow down. You have to, you have to see what's really there. You have to take time to let this let the text warm your heart. And so I want to I do that today, hopefully, if we can. I hope that we can, I hope that we can sit in front of this text and, and we can be warmed, warmed by the gospel that really is here. That's why we keep it so cold in here on Sundays. We want you to be warmed by the gospel, nothing else. So if you were to read this passage like a light bulb, what you might do is you might just flip there and say, ah, the virgin shall conceive, and that's about Jesus, and that's all you need to go on your merry way. Not worrying at all about the context of this. I remember the first time I read this and thinking, and how is this about Jesus? Like, it doesn't seem like this in context. Like, what does this have to do with him? Or if you read it like a light bulb, you might just look for the one-liner, the zinger that really stands out. Verse 9 could be a good candidate. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. It's a good, you know, bumper sticker or something. I don't know. But if you read this like a campfire, what you have to do is you have to slow down and you have to say, What's the context and what's going on here and what does this really teach about Jesus? And so th this morning, that's our goal. I want us to do that. I want us to just slow down and, and look at what's going on in this passage and see what it has to say. So we have a sign, three things to, to find. Who is the sign for? 
what is the sign, and then what does the sign mean? So who is the sign for, what is the sign, and what does the sign mean? So first, who is the sign for? If you look at, uh, look down in your Bible at Isaiah 7.10, it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So God is speaking to Ahaz, whoever he is. And then also look at verse 13, it says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you also weary my God? So if you want to understand who this, who this sign is for in the text, you've got to know something about Ahaz, and you've got to know something about the, the house of David. And there's, there might be a footnote in your Bible that says the Hebrew word for you is plural in verses 9, 13, and 14. And so this is a prophecy we'll find that is to Ahaz, but it's not just to Ahaz. And so let's, let's kind of dive into that. What, what can we learn about Ahaz and about the house of David? So you have to know a little bit of the background. In the year 1050 BC, Israel became a kingdom. And uh, the first king was Saul. And then you had Saul, David, and Solomon. And they each reigned for 40 years. It's pretty easy to remember it that way. They each reigned for 40 years. And um, this was the golden age of, of Israel. David and Solomon were the best kings there ever were. You know, the, the, the kingdom expanded its greatest distance. But after the reign of Solomon, in the year 930 BC, the kingdom split in half. And so then you didn't have just one kingdom of Israel. From then on, you have two. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and you have the southern kingdom of Judah in, in kind of a constant civil war. And you know, a cheat sheet, the, all the kings in Israel are bad. Basically, every last one of them, they're all bad. And God's temple is still in Judah. He's still with his people in Judah. And, and, and that's the lineage through which Jesus would come. And so where is Ahaz a king? Well, we find out that he is a king of Judah. So look at, uh, go back a little further to, to verse 1 in chapter 7. It says this, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So what's going on here? What's the story? Here's the story. Uh, Ahaz is the king of Judah, and the king of Israel and the king of Syria come together, and they, they join together, and they want to come, and they want to kill Ahaz and put in a puppet king so they can resist Assyria and their, the oppression that's going on. So what would this be like? It would be like, imagine that we were a country and we had a great king named Abraham Lincoln or something, and so and imagine there was a civil war, okay? And imagine that 200 years later, the civil war has continued, and we're, we're still split. And so we are a southern kingdom here in North Carolina, and there's a northern kingdom. And this text would be as if the northern kingdom decided they wanted to come and invade us, but not only just the northern kingdom, they, they were going to bring a whole other country with them. It would be like the north coming with an army from Canada to invade us, the world's nicest army. And so these two countries are coming to invade us. And Ahaz is afraid. And not only is he afraid because of these two, but he's also got pressure on the, on the, um, on the west from the Philistines. 
Now, if that was us and we were being invaded, wouldn't we want like a really good, brave, strong, tall king to be our leader, to guide us through this perilous moment? Is that what Judah has and Ahaz? Very sadly, no. They have nothing like that. So what do you learn about Ahaz? You can look at, um, you can look at his story in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, and those, those two um, chapters will tell you about Ahaz. But I'll sum it up for you real quick. Three things about Ahaz. First, this guy is wicked. Like he is evil. The first thing you learn about him is this. Listen, I'll read to you from 2 Kings. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Listen to this. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out. He took his son and remember, this is the line of Judah that Jesus is supposed to come through. The Savior is supposed to come from this king. And he takes his son and he burns him alive. Not only that, but if you read in 2 Chronicles 28, it says that he burned his sons, plural. So more than one. This guy is just evil. I mean, in Deuteronomy 6.14, you know, it, it literally says, you shall not go after the other gods and serve them. That's exactly what this king is doing. So he's wicked. Not only is he wicked... He's, got, he, he's kind of a loser. He's got a losing record, like the Panthers. Second Chronicles, sorry, had to. Second Chronicles 28 uh, describes two massive military losses, okay? The first is, in one day, the king of Israel came, and in one day, he killed 120,000 men of Judah. In one day. And then the second thing is uh, the men of Israel came and they took captive 200,000 women, children, sons. These are just massively embarrassing losses. Almost as bad as losing to the Redskins and then again to the Falcons. I mean, just awful. Okay, I'm done. So he's, he's wicked and he's got a losing record. But not only that, he has no faith in God. He's an idolater. There's this story that you can read in 2 Kings and um, Ahaz eventually pays Assyria to destroy Israel. That's how bad this guy is, okay? So Israel's destroyed in 722 because of Ahaz. But he goes up to Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, and he sees this altar there. And he really likes this altar. And so it says that he sends back the altar, its pattern exact in all of its details to Uriah the priest to have it built for him back in Jerusalem before he even gets back. And he takes God's altar, which sat in front of the temple. So if this was the temple and the altar would be about right there, he, he moves God's altar and pushes it over to the side and he puts his altar there. And then he goes and he offers sacrifices on his altar, something the king is not supposed to do. And then to top it all off, he actually shuts down the temple. He closes the doors to the temple. He puts out the fire. God's presence was there, and he totally extinguishes it. This guy is bad. Quick recap. He sacrifices his children. He loses these crushing military defeats. And he has just no respect for God or his presence at all. So what happens next? We'll, we'll look. Verse 3. 
the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. This is Isaiah 7, 3. You shear Jashub your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And then look down at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. God says to Ahaz, don't worry, I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to let Israel, I'm not going to let Syria, I'm not going to let them come, come, and, come and get you. I'm going to take care of you. And so once you know that, you have to ask yourself the question, why did God do that? I mean, hasn't Ahaz done everything to merit the exact opposite? I mean, wouldn't it be good for God now to send in Babylon to destroy King Ahaz? Why? There's more than just theology here. There's something to warm our hearts. There's something to, to see about the gospel here. So how do we interpret this King Ahaz? I think there are two methods. I call one the Hitler method, and I call one the gospel method. So the Hitler method of interpreting Ahaz goes like this. Man, I'm sure glad I'm not as bad as that guy, you know? I mean, I know I'm evil. I'm not perfect. You know, come on. Like, I know I've made mistakes, but... I'm not Hitler bad. I'm not Ahaz bad, you know. I mean, I call it the Hitler method because Hitler's the guy we all beat up on in our illustrations. He's the golden standard of wickedness, you know. And we we kind of put Hitler in this other category. We like the Hitler method is all about putting distance between yourself and your heart and the people who are really bad, the people who are really evil, right? I'll never forget one of my uh, favorite pastors preaching a sermon. Uh, he, you would know him if I said his name, but he, uh, he was preaching one time about sin, and um, he said this. He said, all the evil of the worst Adolf Hitler, the worst perpetrator of all wickedness, he said, all of that evil, my favorite pastor said this, he said, I am capable of that because of sin in me. And then he said, I am capable of that and even worse. I mean, when he said that, I was like, no, not this pastor. Come on. And he wasn't talking past tense. When, before he was a Christian, he's saying right now, because of the sin in me, I am presently capable of that. So you know what I thought when I heard him say that, right? I thought, I thought to myself, if he's capable of that, am I capable of that? Am I really as bad as Hitler? Am I as bad as Ahaz? Well, if we stop for a second and we just think about what the Bible says about sin, how does the Bible describe our sinful condition? In Ephesians 2, you will remember, it does not say that, and you were less than spiritually ideal in your sins and trespasses. You were, you were not quite as bad as Hitler, but you were still not good. You know, it says you were dead, dead. It doesn't say you were injured. It doesn't say you were limping. It doesn't say you were crippled. It doesn't say you were terminally sick. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is such a critical doctrine to get a hold of. We're dead, totally. I was talking to Marguerite about this, and she said, you need to tell them that you're dead like Lazarus is dead. And if you, if, if you didn't come to Christ until you're 20 years old, 
You've been dead for 20 years, rotting. <laughs> I was like, that's a good thing to say. So I said it. Um, she's not here now, but maybe she'll hear it later. I said it, Marguerite. So, so then you ask the question, well, am I as bad as Hitler? Am I as bad as Ahaz? Well, can you be more dead than someone? Or can you be less dead than someone? The answer is obvious. No, we can't. We can't be. And now I'm not suggesting that God is somehow blind to, like God does, you know, levels or severity of sin. God knows the difference between slapping someone in the face and genocide. Of course, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not talking about actual sins. I'm talking about sinful nature. I'm talking about original sin that you and I are guilty for. Adam's sin. Not our pastor, but the the first Adam. Adam's sin that we are guilty for. That. That's what I'm talking about. One author says this, sin is not just what we do, sin is who we are. When you're alone with your heart and you listen to it, and you listen to the things that it tempts you to do or entices you to do, does it scare you? Or can you even hear it? What if we use, see, this is the gospel method. The gospel method is, is to look at Ahaz and say, me too. I'm capable of that. I've done that. How can we relate to Ahaz? I'm reading a book with a friend right now, written by Tim Keller, about how modern people still worship ancient gods, basically. False gods. And here's what he says. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? Listen to this. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and more prestige. You know, we still have child sacrifice. It just looks different. We still have false gods. They just have different names. We don't sit down and create these idols out of metal. You know, we don't make these metal idols and bow down to them and and worship them. We're far too sophisticated for that. We don't have metal idols. We have mental ideals. Mental ideals, not metal idols. The mental ideals of beauty, of success, of power, of control. And we don't bow down to these mental ideals. That would be silly, but we bend over backward for them. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if our idols are mental ideals or if they're metal idols. If there's anything that draws our our affection closer to something that is not God, if there's anything that's there's any altar we're trying to put there it's sin and you know that when i was reading the story that was one detail that really convicted me and i really had to think about you know when ahaz goes up and sees this altar to these false gods what's interesting is he doesn't destroy he doesn't destroy god's altar right what he just pushes it into the corner he pushes it north of his altar in fact, it actually says, um, it says in 2 Kings 16, 14, the bronze altar 
which is the Lord's altar, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. Why? Well, it tells you in verse 15. He says, I want, here's basically what he says. He says, I want to use my altar to sacrifice. He calls it the great altar. He says, sacrifice on the great altar. But here's what he says. He says, the Lord's altar, he says, the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. He didn't want, he didn't want to delete God from his life. That would be stupid, right? He just wanted to push him into the corner. He just wanted to make way for the center stage to be his solution, his God's. But he wanted this altar to inquire by because he didn't want to give God his sacrifices, but he wanted to be able to talk to him on his terms when he wanted to. Can't you see that we do that, don't we? Isn't it so easy to just push God a little bit north and then take our sacrifices and put them on our own altars? This is the gospel method of viewing it. And someone's going to say, how is this the gospel method? Gospel means good news, and this is just very depressing. (laughs) You haven't said a single happy thing. Well, we have to start here, because when Jesus came into the world and he began his preaching ministry, he said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he said, believe and repent. No, (laughs) he said, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, it's, it's... One gospel, it's kind of two steps, and they kind of go together, but notice what Jesus says. He says, repent. He says, repent and believe the gospel. God calls us to faith after he calls us to repent. And here's the thing. You can't repent of your sin if you don't know what it is. You can't repent of your sinful nature if you don't understand it. We're bad. We're really that bad. We are. And church, I want to remind you this morning that the good news is, the gospel is, not that good people go to heaven, it's that forgiven people go to heaven. And you can only be forgiven if you have something that you need to be forgiven for. The gospel is only good news to bad people. And take it one step further, you've got to be really bad. I mean like Hitler bad, like Ahaz bad. You have to be that bad. Because according to the Bible... If you're not that bad, then Jesus didn't come for you. That's what Jesus says in Luke 5.32. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus says. And in the very next chapter, and here's why this is important, because if, if we want the blessing, we have to understand the curse. We have to. And in the very next chapter of Luke, here's what Jesus says, an amazing truth about God. It's Luke 6.35. He says, The Most High, God, He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Isn't that just a beautiful verse? God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And it's only when we see ourselves as Ahaz in this story that we can get the gospel out of it. Because notice what happens next. Ahaz doesn't believe in God. And so God says to him, you need to have faith. I want you to have faith. That's why he says, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So now you understand the bumper sticker. He says, he says, Ahaz, you've got to have faith. And then in verse 10, God is so gracious. He comes again to Ahaz. Look at verse 10, uh, verse, uh, verse 10, the first word. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And this is where the sign comes in. 
And so let's talk about what the sign is really quick. God comes to Ahaz and he says, let's read verse 11, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So God is coming to Ahaz and he's saying, Ahaz, I really am going to protect you. And I want, you to, I, want your, I want your faith so much, Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign. Anything you can imagine, let it be deep as hell or high as heaven, and I'll do it. You want the sun to turn purple? I'll do it. You want the moon to turn into a chocolate chip cookie? I'll do it. <laughs> deep as hell, high as heaven, whatever it takes to make you believe. Don't you wish God came to you and said that? You know, I'll give you any sign you want. Well, look at what Ahaz says back in return. Verse, thir- uh, verse 12, Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, now that you know who Ahaz is, doesn't that seem a little funny to you? Like, really, Ahaz? I mean, this can only be one of two things. It could be Ahaz possessing very uncharacteristic humility and you know, fastidious concern for keeping the exact law of God in Deuteronomy 6. 16, which says, you shall not put your Lord to the test. Not likely, because really, we know, he, he, it's hypocrisy, isn't it? It's just total hypocrisy. Dressed up as church, dressed up as religiosity. He, and here's how, here's how pitiful it is. Does he know that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 comes right after verse 15 and 14? I guess it, in every chapter it does, you know, 16 comes after 15 and 14. But does he know that Deuteronomy 6, 14, and 15 are the very verses that say, you shall not go after the other gods of the land to worship them, lest God destroys you? And he has the audacity to turn down God by quoting verse 16 and missing 14 and 15. Here's a guy who didn't know the difference between a light bulb and a campfire, right? So he just he's clearly missing it. And we know that it's hypocrisy because look at verse 13. He, this is Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? So, you know, Isaiah saying, Really, Ahaz? And this is where the sign comes in. He says, uh, let's read it. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. So there are kind of two parts to this sign. Real quick, the first is the virgin shall conceive, and the second is shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. So let's see what the sign is all about. So like I said earlier, there is some controversy about this verse, right? So you've got your critical camp who... Uh, they don't see anything supernatural in the scripture. If it's divine, then it was added later. You know, there, there's no predictive power of Jesus or of God, and there's nothing supernatural. This is the critical scholarship camp. And then you've got the more conservative scholarship camp, which says, well, wait a second, you know, God is real, and because he is real, uh, it's not hard for him to do supernatural things. By the way, he's God. So you've got these two competing camps. And so some versions of the Bible translate this as, behold, the young woman shall conceive. Bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. So, why? Why is that such a dispute? Well, I'll give you guys the SparkNote version because I'm sure you don't want the, you know, Wikipedia version or something. So here's the SparkNote version. But basically, that word in Hebrew 
that's translated as virgin in this, my, I'm reading ESV, or, or Alma in some other version, or sorry, uh, as young woman in some other versions, is the Hebrew word Alma, kind of like Alma Mater, right? And the word literally means young woman. And so that's what the word means. And in some contexts, it can mean, it can mean a virgin, but it doesn't have to. It's kind of like in English if we said uh, maid or maiden or something, you know, like a younger woman. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's been sexual experience or that it, this is a virgin. It does, it's kind of silent on that matter. And there is a word in Hebrew called betula, which does mean virgin, just like the word, in, the word virgin in English does mean virgin. So the question is, if Isaiah really wanted this to say virgin, then why did he use Alma and not betula? Because he uses betula later in the book, and then uh, also, you know, if you look at the rest of the passage, there's, there's some sort of immediate fulfillment to this prophecy because the prophecy goes on. You know, the boy will eat curds and honey. Curd is like yogurt or butter uh, for everyone else in the world with me who didn't know what that is. Um, you know, and it says the land will be, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So there's some sort of immediate fulfillment. And so the far, far, far left critical camp would say there's nothing supernatural about this. It, you know, it's immediate fulfillment. Some would even say it's Isaiah's son or Hezekiah they're talking about. Okay, so then why do some versions have it saying virgin? Well, here's the quick, you know, argument for it. First off, in Matthew 1.23, Matthew quotes this, and he, he uses the word uh, virgin in Greek, which is parthenos. And that word parthenos in Greek is like the word betula in Hebrew, like the word virgin in English. It means virgin all the time, parthenos. And so... That's the word that Matthew uses when he quotes this in the New Testament. Not only that, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament by Jewish scholars in 250 BC, it uses the word Parthenos as well, which is interesting because Jewish scholars writing in 250 BC had no Christian bias whatsoever, but they chose to use the word Parthenos there. Also, another thing is, this is a sign to Ahaz that needs some sort of immediate fulfillment, but it's not just to Ahaz, right? When, when we see in verse 13, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men? The Lord will give you a sign that you is in, the, is in the plural. And so that leads us to think, okay, well, this could be bigger than just Ahaz. And if you zoom out and if you read the larger eschatological context of Isaiah and not just Isaiah 7, Isaiah 1 through 12 kind of forms this unit. It's just it's a whole unit. And I, and then after chapter 12 in Isaiah, you've got for the rest, you know, for the next few chapters you have these oracles concerning different nations. But chapters 1 through 12 are really a beautiful symphony. And what I mean by that is Isaiah starts these themes and he weaves them together all the way through and culminates in the very end. So for instance, in in Isaiah, you know, chapter 4, if you're looking at uh, Isaiah 4 and you just look down at verse 2, it says, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Well, you've got the branch of the Lord. We'll look at Isaiah 6, the very last verse there. There's this prophecy of destruction. And then it says, The whole land will be waste and it'll be like a, a stump that remains after a tree's been cut down. And then the last verse in chapter 6, The holy seed is its stump. Okay, well, uh, you know, put a finger there, flip to Isaiah 11.1, 1, and look what Isaiah does. He puts the two together. It's a prophecy about Jesus coming, and he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 6, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, Isaiah 4. 
And he weaves it all together at the end. And how does Isaiah 12, what is Isaiah chapter 12 about? The Lord is my strength and song. And that day you will say, God is my salvation. He has become my salvation. In the very last verse of chapter 12 of this whole unit, it says, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So even there you see this theme in Isaiah that there's this there's sin that's identified, there's destruction that's promised, but there's this larger idea, this theme, that God is going to come and he's going to be there. And in fact, you see that. Adam read it for us earlier in Isaiah chapter 9 when you know, it says, uh, in the former time, there was contempt in Zebulon and, and, and Naphtali. Well, the former time is right now in Isaiah's, pre- er, not Isaiah, in Ahaz's present time. Syria and northern Israel, they're in contempt in, in Naphtali and Zebulon up here. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way by the sea, Galilee of the nations. And then we see in verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be Mighty God. So there's this child who is God, who will dwell with them and will be in their midst. And so when you see that and you zoom out from Isaiah 7, you see this can't just be an ordinary child. Because here's the thing. If this is just an ordinary child, then what's the miracle? You know? God comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, let it be deep, ask a sign, let it be deep as hell or high as heaven. And then Ahaz is like, I will not put the Lord to the test. And then so God gets righteously angry and he says, I will show you, behold, I will give you a sign myself. A young woman shall get pregnant in the way that all young women get pregnant and bear a son and call him Emmanuel. I mean, what's the sign in that? It's building up to something miraculous and that's what we see. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is uh, what Calvin says when he says it's plain enough that he speaks of a virgin who should conceive not by the ordinary course of nature but by the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit. This is the mystery which Paul extols in lofty terms. God was manifested in the flesh. So we can only look at one prophecy but you can, you can learn something from this prophecy that relates to other prophecies about Jesus. They all work kind of in, in the same way. And so some people in this camp say there's got to be an immediate fulfillment. You know, it doesn't have to happen in the context of the original author and there's an immediate idea in Isaiah's mind, right? And then some people say it's just about the virgin birth of Jesus. Forget everything else, you know, the Lord shall conceive and virgin, that's it, nothing else. Well, why can't it be both? See, this is the, this is the theological concept of double fulfillment, which is what you see all the time in prophecy, which is there is an immediate context where the prophecy is used and that comes to pass. And there's an ultimate context. There's something further down the road. It's kind of like, we see, we see this with Abraham, right? When Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac, and Isaac says, you know, here's the wood, but where's the, where's the lamb? And that's where Abraham says, behold, the Lord himself will provide a lamb. Now, is, And then he finds a ram, you know, caught in the thicket. And Abraham is later in the scriptures called a prophet, so, but can't you see that Abraham was speaking, yes, about the ram, but also about the lamb? Because God wrote the whole thing. God wrote the whole book. It's not inconceivable that God knew something Isaiah didn't. And so when the prophets are pointing at, at these prophecies, it's kind of like there's a mountain right in front of them, you know. And Isaiah's pointing at the mountain. He says, there it is. I see the mountain. 
you know, the land whose two kings you dread shall be, you know, deserted. And, and, it, and that's true. And it's like there's, a, there's another mountain behind it, a larger mountain in the distance. And so when Isaiah's pointing to this nearer mountain, at the same time, even if he doesn't see it, God does. He's pointing to the mountain behind it. And every messianic prophecy works that way. The ultimate, the ultimate mountain it's pointing to is Jesus. So in Hosea 11.1, when it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, yeah, God did call Israel out of Egypt and Jesus. And, and we are his people in Jesus. And so we should see Jesus typologically. We should see that it's all pointing towards him. Lastly, what does the sign mean? And I think that this is all really wrapped up in, in this word Emmanuel, you know. Um, Emmanuel means God with us. But Calvin, John Calvin writing his commentary says it, it means God with us. It also means God united to us. He says this. He says that this by this name, he excels all that were ever before and all that shall come after him. It is a title expressive of some extraordinary excellence and authority which he possesses above all others. And, and this is why, again, this prophecy can't be about Hezekiah. It can't be about the son of Isaiah because the name is God with us. Moses never was honored like that. Joshua was never honored like that. The name of this son is God with us. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? Well, I'll end by saying it. I think it means something big, something personal, and something incredible. Something big, something personal, something incredible. The big thing is this, that Emmanuel, God with us, it's, it's funny, it's actually never used anywhere else in the Bible except Isaiah and Matthew. And it's a name for God, but it's more than just a name. This is a theme. This, this name, Emmanuel, this is the theme of the entire Bible. God with us. You remember in the garden with, when Adam and Eve, and they had the presence of God, and they lost it. And what did, what did God do? It says he drove them out of the garden and put a cherubim at the east, a flaming sword so they couldn't get back in. They lost the presence of God. They forfeited it. And you know when they built, they built the temple, they built it facing the east, and they had this giant curtain, and on the curtain, do you know what they put? They put cherubim, guarding the way back. And when the priest would come in, like Adam was saying last week, when the priest would come in, he was moving, he was moving from east to west, back towards the presence of God, back towards the presence of God. And he had to come over and over again, back to the presence of God. But all he was doing was, was covering sins. He wasn't atoning for them. This theme of God with us is the whole story of the Bible. In fact, in Revelation 21, it not only, the Bible not only begins with this theme, it ends with it. Because in Revelation 21.3, it says God himself will be with them as their God. God will be with us. That's what heaven is. And you know what connects the two? It's Jesus. Because when Jesus was crucified, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And it opened a way to bring the presence of God back to us. And so this is a big, this sign is something big 
because it's a big story and we play a small part in it. We're here 100 years. We're here 50 years. That's it. This is a big story that we get to be a part of. But it's also personal. And the reason it's personal is because not only, it's interesting, not only does not only does the whole Bible, Genesis and Revelation, open and close with this theme, God with us, but so does the book of Matthew. The sign of Emmanuel in, I, in Matthew 1.23. And then what's the very, very last verse in Matthew? Matthew 28.20, 20, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Behold, I am with you always. I'm with you always to the end of the world, to the end of the age. And that's a promise that is huge. The disciples weren't going to live to the end of the age. He wasn't just making that promise to them. He was making it to us. He was making it to his church, that he would be with us, that he'd be with you. And I wish Ahaz could have seen how tailored to his life this sign was. Because Ahaz, he was the the wicked king who worshipped false gods and he sacrificed his sons in a terrible act of wickedness. And what is the sign that God chose to give him? He chose to give him the sign of a son who would be sacrificed in an act of righteousness to the one true God. Couldn't Ahaz see just how perfectly tailored to his life this, this sign was? Well, the sign isn't just for Ahaz, it's for you. It's God united to you. God united to your life. As cheesy as this is going to sound, I still want to say it. The Christmas Christmas present that God has for you is his presence. (laughs) It is. Emmanuel, God with us. This is what he wants for you. And lastly, it's, it's something big, it's something personal, but it's something incredible. It really is incredible. The virgin conceived. Guys, that's impossible. Virgins do not conceive. It's not just difficult. It's not just hard. It's biologically impossible. We, we have a God who doesn't just do hard things or difficult things or impressive things. We have a God who does impossible things. And the earthly life of Jesus is bookended by two miracles. He's born of a virgin, impossible. And he rises from the dead, impossible. And if you put all these together, it's big, it's personal, and it's incredible. Here's what you get. Whatever's going on in your life, whichever armies, okay, are are invading you right now, and it doesn't matter which wicked gods you've been serving and bending over backwards for, the promise is for you. The sign is for you. God, God can do impossible things. And he can do impossible things still in your life and in your heart. You, can we just think about that? You, you say that I'll never, I'll never be free from this porn addiction. Or you say, I'll, my, God, my, my marriage could never be restored. I could never love my spouse again. You say, I can never move on because of, because of what this person did to me. God does impossible things. And he's united to you. You're part of a big, big story. It's about us throwing away this privilege of God's presence. And it's about Jesus giving it back. He is Emmanuel. And that same impossible power, the one that made 
a virgin conceive, that same impossible power that made a dead man rise from the grave is in you. If you can believe it, it's in you. His name is Jesus. This power has a name. And he will be with you always, even to the end of the world. Let's pray.